You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, he didn't introduce himself out of modesty. So I'm going to introduce that's Mike Flory, one of the sweetest smelling elders in the world one of our downtown campus elders, and I'm thankful for Mike and his wife, Barbara, and I'm also delighted that you're here. Uh, We believe, and we say this as often as we can, that your presence is no accident. We are completely confident and convinced that God and his sovereignty has divinely directed your steps, that you would be in this place this morning, which means that God, by his spirit, wants you to be among his people as we open his word. That means that he wants to do something in, to, with, and through us that our thinking adapts to his. We do not come to God's word hoping, anticipating, nor expecting that he will change his thinking to adapt to ours. We come humbly, yieldedly, and submissively to God's word, as James 1.21 says, and we receive his word with meekness. Asking that God's word, when it comes into proximity with the living word written on our hearts, that it will reverberate and resonate and that it will change us. So, having said that, let me go again to God's word. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. I'm going to read this aloud. I'll invite you to follow along on screen or on paper or on somewhat intelligent device. Proverbs chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse 6. Solomon writes this, Proverbs 6, 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is God's word. So it's a particularly convicting passage right off the bat. It reminds me of, uh, well, let's just say two plus decades ago uh, when I was still in the process of dating my wife. My wife is from... Here in Tyler, she grew up in Tyler in East Texas, and I grew up in the Texas Panhandle, where this platform resembles the vegetation of the Texas Panhandle. And then I moved to Tyler in East Texas, where there was this claustrophobic thing of these, these, you call them trees, and they're everywhere. And it took a lot of getting used to, and there's some other customs that I had to get used to in the culture of East Texas. For example, one morning, her parents made breakfast. And it was at this point that her dad introduced me to the glory of this stuff called ribbon cane syrup. Some of you know this. Now, personally and transparently, I think it tastes like a burning tire. But but some people love it, and that's great. I'm trying to adapt. I'm trying to become like East Texas. And this man would one day, I was hoping, praying, would be my father-in-law. And so he offered me ribbon cane syrup for my pancakes. Wanting to be respectful, I took the jar and I began to pour. (laughs) But this stuff was so thick, it was so viscous, 
It was so dense, it literally like affected the gravity in the room. Like you, you just leaned in towards it because it was so heavy. Light was literally bending around it. It, it. it was creating its own little microclimate in the room. And I'm sitting there pouring it, and now everyone's watching. Well, I'm committed to this project, just like I'll be committed to your daughter, sir. And so I'm just watching this stuff. And it's like, it's not hardly, and it was cold in the room. So it's just barely bulging out over the rim. And now it's getting awkward. I think I probably lost focus. I started to daydream. And finally, this thing fell, and it landed on the pancakes, created a divot, and and it was kind of nasty. But you know what? "Mm, This is delightful. This is delicious. Mm -hmm." All of these years later, decades later, it occurs to me, man, oh, man, how often my day starts and I feel just like that ribbon cane syrup. Hmm. It just moves so slowly. You perhaps understand that. You just feel so very sluggish sometimes. And so this morning, because of God's inspired and errant and authoritative word, I get the opportunity to come and get in everybody's kitchen and really sort of be an equal opportunity offender. (laughs) and talk about this issue of laziness, of sluggishness. We are in a summer-long series, a study through the book of Proverbs in June and Psalms in July, and then some very specific Bethel vision uh, nuggets in the month of August, and we are in June. So last week, we started our pursuit of wisdom, talking about the wisdom of words, that one in six of the verses in Proverbs have to do with our words. But right on the heels of words, there's a very frequent, persistent topic in the book of Proverbs, and it has to do with laziness, sluggishness. Now, some of us will hear that and will automatically stop up our ears and tune out because we know that down deep, we're actually workaholics. And by God, nobody ever will ever call me lazy no matter what. Well, this passage is for you. Then there's the rest of us who hear a passage like Proverbs 6, and we begin to squirm just a little bit because we know that we have a tendency to fall victim to all sorts of time wasters. These little things that just nick us and cut us and end up siphoning and sapping away the majority of our day. Little bites at a time. Whichever category you're in, or maybe you're in different categories, back and forth, depending on the season, this passage is for you. Because the reality is that all of us struggle at one level or another, in one way or another, to face reality. Every single one of us has things in our lives that we would really rather just not deal with or face. And it comes out of a deep-seated fear that I think this passage is speaking to. So how do we respond? Because how we respond matters. What we do and how we live our lives is telegraphing what we believe. Let me say that again. What we do and how we live our lives is telegraphing, is broadcasting, is proclaiming, is presenting what we believe. And so here is our big idea for this morning. Last week it was words matter. This week it is work matters. Now when I say work, I do not mean exclusively your paid employment, your vocation. 
the thing that you do for your job, although that is a part of it. I'm talking about what you do with your life. Work matters. So again, to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 to 11, I want to just sort of unpack these verses very briefly, and then we'll spend quite a bit of time applying them in a very practical sense, I hope. Now, this little six-verse passage, uh, six passage can really sort of be broken up into two sections. Verses 6, 7, and 8 begins by addressing the sluggard. Verses 9, 10, and 11 begin by addressing the sluggard. Now, this is written by a man named Solomon, the, the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. And he adopts the Hebrew custom of the sage or the teacher. In Hebrew, it's koheleth. And the book of Ecclesiastes is actually called Koheleth. It's the teacher. And he is adopting the position of the sage who is passing along wisdom. Now, he's writing this particular passage at the sluggard. But it's really for the benefit of his son, who will read this later. And by extension, it is for his people that he knows are in need of wisdom. And so, by ultimate extension, it's for us. It's written for us, not to us. So it's written at the sluggard for the benefit of his son, for the benefit of his people, and in posterity for the benefit of we who will hear it thousands and thousands of years later. It is written to the sluggard. This word sluggard is atzel. It's sort of a play on words. Even the name in Hebrew, the word sounds like ribbon cane syrup in winter. It just oozes. Atzel. Now, this sluggard is going to be addressed 14 times in the book of Proverbs. It's a recurring, repetitive theme. Over and over again, Solomon the sage will address the sluggard because there's a little bit of sluggard in all of us. It just manifests itself differently. So let me ver read uh, verse 6, and we'll unpack this. He says in verse 6 again, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Now, so far, in the preceding context, we're dealing with financial matters. In chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, we see a person who has experienced financial ruin because of an unchaste wife. In chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, we see financial ruin because of a harsh debtor. But now, in verses 6 through 11, we have financial affliction because of a failure to follow the created order and God's design. The sage charges the sluggard to go. Sort of a kick in the ribs to get up and move, to do something, anything different than what you're doing. Because what you're doing isn't working, oh sluggard. And he'll make an illustration from creation. Go to the ant. The sage refers to creation. We call this general revelation. God reveals himself in the created order. Did you know that the material, physical, created realm is a reflection of the spirit realm. God is sovereign in his design. There are no accidents. Everything is on purpose. We can see this sort of stuff in the created order. We see the industry of a beaver making a dam. We can see the cleverness and the ingenuity of an otter, how it catches fish. We can even see things in our own experience where the love and the nurture and the tender compassion of a mother for her child, and we begin to understand things about God. That's how God says that he cares for us like a mother cares for her child. There are things in the created order 
which are intended to pass along wisdom. I find it fascinating that the sage, the wisest man that ever lived, does not instruct the sluggard to go to seminary or to go to Sunday school. He says, go to the ant and take a peek. Jesus himself knew how to do this. So many of his teachings, his parables, referenced the created order because the people of his day, just like ours, were familiar with it. They understood it. They could relate to it. Jesus used all sorts of examples from the created realm so that he could convey timeless truths and priceless principles. The sage tells the sluggard, go to the ant. This is really fascinating. This being, this species, man, that was created to be the vice regent over all creation is directed to go and learn from the one of the lowest creatures you can even observe at that time. There's no microscopes. There's no fine-tuned lenses to look at small, tiny creatures. The ant was one of the smallest perceivable creatures. And so this one, who was given authority to be the ruler of the world, to have dominion, is now directed to go and observe the ant. In other words, the wise person will receive wisdom from wherever it approaches. Let me say that again. The wise person will receive wisdom from wherever it approaches. It's interesting. He's directed to go to the ant. The ant has always been, in countless cultures, a symbol of industry. In fact, the German word for ant comes from the German word for industry. They so recognize it. And if you know anything about the Germans, they're known for their efficiency and their industry. And when they call the ant the industrious one, you know that's pretty important. Now, this is the first time in chapter 6, verses 6 and following, that Solomon will address the sluggard. Fourteen times total, he's going to address laziness and sluggishness. And he directs him to the ant. The rabbis, over the millennia, writing and commenting about this passage in Proverbs 6, would say that the ant is the godly symbol of industry. They would write that he is noble and industrious. He practices self-discipline and is community-minded. So here in verse 6, we get the sage giving the sluggard three imperatives, three commands, three directives. Number one, go. See, Solomon knew what Isaac Newton figured out millennia later, that a body at rest tends to stay at rest. You know what I'm talking about, particularly when it's football season and there are Doritos nearby. You just, it's easier to just to sit there, right? It's just easier to sit there. But Solomon says, go, get moving. The very first instruction is to, to, to change from the position and the stasis. Number two, consider. Consider the end. Get to thinking. Get moving. And once those juices start to percolate, consider. Be a thinking person. Observe and understand what is being revealed in the created order. Look at the things that we see in our world. They are, they are not wasted. God in his sovereignty has divinely directed and purposed the things we are commanded to be observant and to be watchful and to understand and to receive wisdom from those things. Third, after we go and consider, be. Be wise. Be wise like the ant. That's right. Top of the food chain, man. Be wise like the ant. Adapt your way of life to that of an ant. Apply the message that God has given in creation to the point that you're actually changed by it. When was the last time you saw something holy in creation and you said, you know what? That's what God wants. 
and you bent your thinking and your will and your desire to it. That's wisdom. Verse 7 is very, very quick. He says, without having any chief, officer, or ruler. This is what the ant does. The ant is leaderless. It has nobody and needs nobody to tell it what to do. We'll see a similar description of the locust in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27. It has no need of anybody giving it instruction. Three different types of leader here. He has no katsin, no chief. This is the person who, who makes final decisions, who cuts off matters of conflict and confrontation. He has no need of that person settling disputes. I'm reminded again of our study through the book of Galatians this past spring where we learned that we do not need to go back to the law, the code of conduct, the rule book, because we are indwelled instead by God's Holy Spirit. God is near. He is with us. He indwells us. I don't need a rule book. I have God himself indwelling my person. And in a sense, you see that the ant also has no need of a chief. He has no officer. This is uh, the Hebrew word shoter. It's the one who administrates, communicates, and coordinates. In ancient Egypt, the shoters were the ones who drove the Israelite slaves, who told them what to do and drove them and motivated them to accomplish it. Solomon says the ant has no need of that. The ruler is the Hebrew word mashal. It isn't so much a governmental or a political office of leadership. It's someone who simply has authority over a subordinate, and the ant has no need of any of these three leaders. Well, what's the point? The point is in the ant world, there is no middle management. It's interesting. There is no waste of ant resources. Every single member of the organization is working according to the purpose and the mission. And one gets the idea that the sluggard in verse 7 and in verse 6 really can't accomplish anything unless all three of these types of leaders are present in his or her life. Can't really accomplish or achieve or do anything unless they're being told what to do, which let me, let me just go to my very first inline application here. And this might be somewhat convicting because it is to me. If it requires a command to get us to act, then we do not truly possess wisdom. Oh yeah, I feel that. I typed this up early in the week and I thought, oh, crud. That's, that's, well, if it requires a command to get us to act, then we do not truly possess wisdom. Now, you might be offended by that. That's okay. There's grace for that too. Listen, this is for all of us. All of us have the capacity. All of us have the margin in which we can grow in wisdom. And let me be very plain here. I am not making eye contact with anybody. You may feel like I am. No, no, that's the Holy Spirit. That's not me. These lights are bright, and I got Coke bottles up here. I can't see any of your faces with that much detail. If you're feeling that, it's not me. It's, I'm looking right at everybody's scalps, okay? This is not me talking at you. This is me talking to me, and you get to be present. If it requires a command to get us to act, then we do not truly possess wisdom. Well, verse 8. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. This is one of the many ways that we know that God's word is inerrant and inspired and authoritative. Solomon uses a female verse here because, of course, elevating women and the female gender to the position of dignity. Look at what she does. This is so foreign and different from what was typically written in antiquity. But Solomon is inspired. Even the insect world understands the, the divine order of God's design. She prepares her bread, verse 8, in summer and gathers her food in harvest. 
The ant prepares food and puts it away for the coming and approaching necessity. And following the rhythm of the created order, she receives the fruits of her labor at the exact right time. This is how Jesus devised and designed and directed the nation of Israel around their festivals and their feasts, around planting and around harvest. There is a cycle, there is a rhythm to our world. Now you get the idea that at harvest time, the sluggard is absolutely flummoxed and perplexed that there's no food for him. Like, what do you mean there's nothing for me? I I sat around and did nothing all year. How can there not be anything for me? He's completely perplexed, completely flummoxed. Even the ant knows. So John Kitchen puts it this way. He says, foolishness only labors when the stomach growls, but wisdom labors because it knows the stomach will growl. Well, verses 9, 10, and 11 sort of turn the page, and again, the sage addresses the sluggard, and he asks two rhetorical questions. And this is Hebrew parallelism. These two lines in verse 9 sort of just amplify one another. He says in verse 9, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? This is not because the, the sluggard is asleep at 2 in the morning at the appropriate time of rest. You get the sense that the harvest has already started a while back, and this guy is laying around doing absolutely nothing. And because of that, judgment is imminent. There will be a consequence. Now, to be very, very clear and very careful and very cautious, this is not the sage, Solomon, nor the Holy Spirit decrying relaxation or rest or recreation. Those things are vital. Those things are necessary. This is not bad-mouthing, reading a book, or spending time with your family, or sleeping at night. Absolutely not. Our bodies absolutely have to have sleep. That's how God designed us, but at the appropriate time. This is not decrying taking a much-needed rest after a long days of work. Of course not. If we don't get sleep, our bodies physiologically suffer. Our vital organs cease replenishing, and we suffer physical damage. We have to sleep. The idea is this person is stepping away and is escaping the reality in front of him. So, verse 10 is the sluggard's answer to the questions of verse 9. Now you get a little bit of a dialogue. Verse 9, how long? When? Verse 10 is the answer. Oh, a little sleep, a little slumber a little folding of the hands to rest. I'm just so sleepy. I see this on your faces on Sunday mornings. I know, I know. Some of you, you get the best rest of your week on a Sunday morning, and I am delighted to provide that luxury to you. This is the sluggard saying, I know that something needs to be done, but instead I think I'll just pull back and escape. I don't want to face the thing that I must do. A little sleep. We have to have some understanding of the language that's being used here because it sounds kind of innocuous. A little sleep, a little slumber. No, 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 no. The way the language is used, it's an indictment. It's a plural. Just a few sleeps. Every time something is required of me, I'm so sorry, I'm just so sleepy. You know I have an iron deficiency, right? (sighs) And there's just this pulling back of, I'm going to escape from my present reality. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refuse to face this reality. A little bit of slumber, just a quick cat nap. I'm just going to, you know what, you know, I, I deserve this. 
I deserve, I've earned this. I'm just going to, a little quick cat nap. A little folding of the hands to, I'm not sleeping, I'm just resting my eyes. A little folding of the hands. All of these are an indictment of a fallen human desire to escape responsibility. It is a manifestation of our sin tendency to avoid doing what must be done. And so we escape somehow, even with a good thing like sleep, and we procrastinate. The sluggard says, the world simply isn't working the way I want it to. Why is everything so hard? Why doesn't everything go my way? And so he just shuts down. Kind of sleep simply produces a deeper desire for more sleep because to wake from it means that, well, the world in reality I refuse to face is still there when I wake up. And so all I want to do is think about my next opportunity to sleep. Derek Kidner, he put it this way. He said, the sluggard does not commit himself to a refusal, but he deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. This little expression, a little folding of the hands, is not just interlocking of the fingers and sleep. No, no, no. It is a full-blown, it's a Hebrew expression that means I fold my arms and I show you my uvula. Because I am in a flat posture of refusal. I will not face what I have to do. I'm just going to escape from it. That's a little folding of the hands. Well, verse 11 is the sage's response to the sluggard. So verse 9 couple rhetorical questions. Verse 10 is the sluggard's response. Verse 11 is the sage's response. He says this, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. He jumps right to it. Poverty, this Hebrew word resh, means utter destitution, complete ruin. It is not simply being a little short of cash. That's poor. That's a different word. Always in scripture, Poor is because of circumstances that have overcome you, that have overtaken you, misfortune, deception, whatever it might be. And God has a very special place in his heart for the poor, always. And he makes provision for the poor in and through other people. This is a different word. This is poverty. This is always because of a person's unwillingness to do what must be done. It will come upon you like a robber. Now, I have had the experience of being burglarized twice, And in neither occasion did the robber, the burglar, let me know that he was coming. That would have been handy. I wouldn't have been there. I would have, are you kidding? But that would have been nice to know. You never know when it comes on you. It's a surprise. And then you show up and you're like, what? 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 What happened? Where's my stuff? Poverty will come on you like a robber. Your want, meaning your intense longing and need for something, for for survival, will come upon you like an armed man. Armed men do not telegraph their next move. They spring and surprise. Well, there's an awful lot that we can take here and apply. What do we do? This is extremely practical, so how can we apply it? I just want to say again, our big idea for the morning is that work matters. And again, I don't necessarily mean only your employment, your job. I mean your doing. What do you do with the life God has given you? What do you do? It matters. Our work matters. So I'm going to have three major applications, implications here. And this first one, I'm going to give some little, uh, I'm going to give four little sub points. The first major implication is this. See the sluggard. No, not, not just here. Yes, I know you can see this sluggard. I mean, in your own bathroom mirror, see the sluggard recognize and appreciate that every single one of us has a tendency at some level to be sluggish, 
to be lazy. Even if our highest value is to never be seen, perceived, or thought of as lazy, there are still certain things that we will avoid. You know, like, uh, I don't know, inviting a neighbor to dinner this summer that you don't know where they are spiritually. You'll find all kinds of reasons and excuses to put that off. I was watching your faces. When Mike mentioned that, you're like, I ain't doing that. (laughs) And we'll find reasons to not do the things that we're being led to do. All of us. Or we'll put it away with all different kinds of time wasters. So see the sluggard. Four quick ways that from the text we can all identify the sluggard in me. Okay? Number one, the sluggard resists resistance at all costs. The New Testament book of James is all about resistance training. Resistance training makes us stronger. God uses resistance training in our lives. But in our fallenness, we have a tendency to resist resistance training. It doesn't take a whole lot of examination on your part, but you can look up on this platform and realize that I would rather eat a light bulb than exercise. It's true. And how come? Because it hurts. I don't particularly enjoy it. It takes time. I get messy. I'm cranky. But every time that I do, I'm so glad that I did. But I have a tendency, a fallenness, a tendency to stay put. And I resist resistance training, but I know this much. Physiologically, simply doing cardio is not enough. I need the big muscles to experience resistance. Those things have got to get big so that they will metabolize all the Cheetos and Doritos that I consume. And without those things getting larger and experiencing resistance, it's never going to work. I have to have resistance training. There's a guy named Stephen Pressfield that's written a book all about this called The War of Art talks about a pro is someone that recognizes resistance for what it is and embraces it, recognizing that it makes them stronger. But a sluggard resists resistance at all costs. Guilty. Second one, the sluggard can't make up his or her mind. See, like Solomon, I want to be equal opportunity, gender offensive here. The sluggard can't make up his or her mind. He or she is characterized by paralysis, by analysis. I don't know what to do. Maybe so, maybe no. I just don't know, and so I won't do anything. He has to be wait to be told what to do by somebody else so that they will be responsible for whatever happens, not me. I'm not putting that on me. You tell me what to do, and it'll be your call, and that way I can shift the blame on you. Maybe you know what that's like. I certainly do. Number three, the sluggard won't finish things. You got about a million and one projects and not a single one of them is finished. The sluggard won't finish things. Proverbs 26, verse 14 and following says this, as a door turns on its hinges. So does a sluggard on his bed. That's not a compliment, incidentally. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. I call this Thanksgiving. <laughs> like, there's the cranberries. I thought, Somebody help. Put my fist in my face for me. I'm just so tired. Little help. Little help. The sluggard, this is such a brilliant verse, buries his hand in the dish, and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. He can't even finish that project. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. I am right 
Everybody else is wrong. Everybody else is an idiot, but I am correct. Why is the world so hard? This is the way the world should work. I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. You might be a sluggard. Can't finish a project. You get so close simply because of a deeper-seated fear of failure, believing that the outcome is completely and totally on me. It's because our identity is too tightly wired to what we can do. What if I finish and it ain't perfect? That will mean that I'm not perfect and I'm not good enough. Newsflash, Charlie, it's never going to be perfect. Finish. Finish. And if you're not perfect, there's grace for that too. So often, we have a tendency to get to the finish line. And go, but what if it's not good enough? What will people think? Jesus says, you're mine. Finish the job. So, so far we've got the sluggard resists resistance at all costs, can't make up his mind, won't finish things. And then fourthly, the sluggard won't face reality. Proverbs 22, 13 says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I should be killed in the streets. Really? Downtown Jerusalem on Main Street, there's a lion. Really? Really? This is just a flat refusal to accept reality, to face it. There's not a lion walking down Main Street on Broadway or in Jerusalem then or now. It's a pathetic, sad, pitiful excuse from an escape artist. Oh, it was me. The sun was in my eyes. The dog ate my homework. El Nino, whatever. It's not my fault. I can't face reality. But there, there might be comical, but there is a thing under the thing. There is a sin under the sin that is very, very serious. It is a failure to realize that Jesus has already provided every good and perfect thing, James 1.17 says. We can face reality because we have all that we need. We lack nothing. Nothing that I have to accomplish truly defines me. I have already received every good and perfect thing, and so I can face reality. I can have that hard conversation with my boss, with my spouse, with my kids, with my neighbor. I can do that hard thing that will require blood, sweat, and tears because it doesn't define me whether it goes well or not. I can do it because it is what God has placed in front of me to do. So here's a convicting question. When we have a tendency to escape and not want to face the reality of our existence, of our lives, what are the top three time wasters of your life? What are they? Do some quick inventory. I bet the Spirit will bring that to mind. What are the top three time wasters of your life? I'm betting you already know. More than that, I'm betting your spouse already knows. Oh, she knows. She's already emailed him to Jesus. She's already, she knows. She's probably got him on a card right now. Look at her. she got him written down. She knows. What are the top three things that you do that will just quickly nip away four minutes, 60 seconds, 10 minutes? What are those top three things? Perhaps a 30-day fast is in order. Now, not legalistically. Not, do you see this, God? I'm giving up angry birds. You better pour on the blessing now, God. No, no, no. Guess what? You get another 30 days in the hopper. You've done it wrong. Stop. No. I... I'm giving this up because I recognize that minute by moment, I'm giving away the opportunity to do what is presented for me to do. This does not mean that we do those things to earn God's favor because we already have it. Well, second major quick implication point, work is spiritual. 
I don't know how in modernity, in modern times, we have so dramatically lost this reality that work is not merely material and physical. Work is every bit as much spiritual. The ancients have always known this. Somehow, over the last 150 years, we have sort of compartmentalized and separated. So, well, that's my work life. That's different than my spiritual life. Wrong again! Work is intensely and immensely spiritual. Colossians 3 says this. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily. Now, whatever you do, what does that leave out? Nothing. It includes everything. Whatever you do, work heartily. Your heart is in it. The spiritual aspect of your being is fully engaged. As for the Lord and not for men, as if he is kurios, as if he is the sovereign, because he is. Knowing, having confidence, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I absolutely love that Paul puts those two words together. You are serving the Lord, Kurios, the sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Christ, the one who humbly went to the cross to die for the sin of another. It's both and. Your work is spiritual and it matters. Whatever we do, from making copies to removing tumors, it is to be done with a recognition that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and what we do is in view of his mercy. Paul carries this thought on in 2 Thessalonians 3. Verses 10 to 12, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Oh, you're doing something all right, but it doesn't really mean anything. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Again, this does not mean that we earn God's favor or improve our standing before him. Our study through the book of Galatians made that abundantly clear. But we come to passages such as this, and we get to to discipline ourselves to make everything we do a proclamation of this wonderful foundational truth that Jesus is worth it. Now, I can tell you, having been in ministry for a long time, there are some tasks that are wonderful and awesome, and there are a lot more that are sort of just menial and dirty. Sweeping floors, cleaning up baby fluids, moving chairs, stringing speaker wire, whatever it might be. And a mentor many, many years ago taught me and trained me how to have this very simple discipline. Every chair that I would move, Lord Jesus, you're worth that one. Lord Jesus, you're worth that one. Lord Jesus, you're worth that one. And then you know what I couldn't do? I couldn't wait after a while. I couldn't wait to move the next chair. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. Lord Jesus, you're worth this. And then the stuff that I did became an expression of worship and joy and fulfillment, not a begrudging, well, I guess I have to because nobody else will. Don't they know how busy and important I am? No, they don't. And they don't care. And you're not. But instead, simple changing of the mind, Lord Jesus, you're worth this. And then there is no job, there is no task beneath you because Lord Jesus you are worth this. I will change that diaper. I will shovel that dirt. I will empty that trash. I will move that chair. I will preach that sermon. I will hug that neck because Lord Jesus 
You're worth this. Third point, very quickly, wisdom works in anticipation of the future. We are not bound and imprisoned by the moment. We recognize that there is a future. It means we have an, to have an understanding that in the world in which we live, there are consequences for actions and inactions. And here's this wonderful tension. There is the sovereignty of God, and he has created all of us in his image, given us dignity to choose to be aware of his presence and to bend our wills to his and then to live and act accordingly. He's even given us a new will, says Philippians 2, to do that. Is it the sovereignty of God or is it the choice of man? Uh Uh-huh. Get with it. It's both and. We are to be aware of the created order and live according to it. This is a good witness to the world around us. So many people out in the world who are not believers have heard well-meaning evangelical Christians say something like this, well, it doesn't really matter what I do, this whole world is going to burn anyway. No, it ain't. And that's above your pay grade. And that's deeply offensive to a lost world who's going, hey, how do Christians treat the world around them? With disdain and a lack of responsible stewardship? No, we do have, by grace, a role and responsibility to do. We live in expectation of God's goodness in this life and in the future, and we live in anticipation of a heavenly reward. God says so. Did you know that? That you and I are supposed to live in anticipation of Jesus, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And then we'll take those crowns and we'll throw them at his feet. But Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And then Philippians 2 says he even gives us the new want to do those things, and then he rewards us for it. I think I'm in. That's grace. We are to live in anticipation of that heavenly reward. Work matters. Listen, because of the introduction of sin into our world, the world is fallen and corrupt, and so every single one of us in one way or another carries a fear of something. The greatest fear is that we will somehow have separation from God and spend all eternity apart from him in hiddenness and obscurity and insignificance. The second fear is likened to it. If my everlastingness is up to me, then what if I get it wrong or don't measure up? And so we have this tendency to just, to just, to just put it off. What if this really is about how good I can be? That's too much to think about. What if I get it wrong? I think I'll just do nothing. But the reality has been faced. The deepest darkness of death has been faced by Jesus himself on the cross on our behalf so that we will never have to. And even though most of us have heard that before and we know that, we still have a tendency to let our eyes and our minds fall and we get bogged down in the daily dreariness of life. But because that reality has been faced and it is finished, now our work, our doing, is a response to what he has done and not a responsibility to try to earn what he has done. And so I just want to close with this last final summary synthesis reminder from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 13 to 17. It's a great, great challenge. He says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
Do you realize how much of our lives are spent asleep? By God's design, at least a third of our lives are spent asleep, where we are motionless, defenseless, utterly incapable of accomplishing anything worthwhile. And it is during those seasons, Psalm 127 says, that the Lord is busily at work for us, so that when we rise, it's like a little mini resurrection every single morning. We rise and we recognize, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, and I will do that which he has purposed for me to do, because he is worth it. Arise, O sleeper, and wake, and he will shine on you. And it wouldn't kill you to brush your teeth. Now, I put that in myself because I have two sons. Arise, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Oh, I wish that was a better translation. Paul uses a special word, exagorizomai, buying back the time. Buying back the time because the time has a tendency of its own volition to slip away and go to things that are not productive and profitable. We have to be aware and we buy back the time. It is in the marketplace of futility. We buy it back and say, this, this, these loaves and fishes of these moments that I have, Lord Jesus, would you exponentially amplify and increase? And the answer is already yes. Buy back the time. Why? Because the days are evil. We live in the present evil age. Even though we are citizens of the age to come, our passport is gold, but we live in the midst of the blue passport world. There is a gravity to depravity. It pulls down our time. And before we know it, we wake up and it's early evening. What happened? Just a little bit more folding of the hands. Arise, O sleeper. Awake, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Go to the ant. Consider and be wise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your people. God, I confess I am personally convicted by this, and so I'm eager to move on to next week. But we also know, God, that there is grace and there is no way possible for me to atone for all the wasted moments I have produced. It stands nailed to the cross. So thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. When we get it wrong in our words, when we get it wrong in our work, thank you that we are forgiven already. And Father, for those that are here this morning that are not believers, that do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, would you move by your spirit and change their minds? Would you lead them to rethink their thinking about Jesus, that he's not merely a good teacher and a swell rabbi. He is the very son of God who fulfilled the demands of the law, perfection, and who paid the wages of sin with his own death. And he is alive. And so now we can live lives of purpose and meaning and significance and value and worth because he is alive. For the rest of us, Father, would you inject us and infuse us by your spirit with wisdom? Would you give us the clarity and the courage to identify the things that sap and siphon our lives away? Would you give us the wisdom to go to the ant, to consider and to be? And Father, for those that are here that are industrious because of your worth, would they be encouraged by this passage and continue on? Because Lord Jesus, you are worth it. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit, and in your name, amen.
Well, thanks so much for being here this morning. I pray that you will continue to pursue wisdom next Sunday morning on the Lord's Day. Lord willing, we'll discuss self-control. Yeah, that'll be fun for me. Self-control. But for now, let me ask you to stand for word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Now, may the Lord who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work he has already. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.